Welcome to the Tao of Color Grading interview series, where we talk with influencers, thought leaders, and professionals about the field of color grading for moving images. Show notes, links, our free weekly newsletter, and our color training products can be found at TaoOfColorGrading.com. And I'm your host, Patrick Inhofer. Quick reminder, if you enjoy this podcast, help spread the word by logging into iTunes and leaving feedback. You would not believe how valuable it is to this podcast. And stay tuned as the Tao of Color will be announcing very shortly an expansion of our Color Correction Masterclass to include DaVinci Resolve 8 training. For the next two episodes, we are talking with colorist and finisher Terence Curran of Burbank-based Alpha Dogs. Terence is an avid symphony extraordinaire who has mastered the craft of curves-based color grading. In part one, we dig deep into the Avid Symphony finishing toolset and have a bit of a discussion about Final Cut X. Note, this episode was recorded back about a week before NAB 2011, but because Terrence was so spot on about his predictions of Final Cut 10, I've left this discussion in our podcast, and also because Terrence brings up some additional thoughts on this whole future of Final Cut discussion that I've not really heard expressed anywhere else. So, okay, this lead-in is way too long. Let's get to it. So I have with me today, uh, Terrence, do you, you prefer Terry, don't you? Uh, it doesn't matter. All right, Terrence Maybe. Curran from Alpha Dogs. Uh, you've known him all over the web. He's all over the place. Uh, Terry, thank you very much for agreeing to this interview today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. I love uh, your new podcast, the Ter Terrence and Philip uh, show. Uh, uh, I really enjoy that. Well, thank you. And, um, and you, you're kind of, you've got a lot of things going on. I mean, you've got, you are a professional uh, editor, colorist. You're running your own business, Alpha Dogs. Uh, you've got the digital service station. You've got your podcast. You've got the editor's lounge. Um, you know, you keep yourself pretty busy uh, these days, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and so can you give me a quick overview as to kind of how, when people ask you what you do, how you describe yourself? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, as far as uh, which part? Like if somebody's asking me, what do I do for a living? A living, I'll, yeah. You know, I generally say, you know, it depends. If they're in the industry, I say I'm primarily a colorist. If they're outside the industry, I say, well, I'm a, a, a television editor is the easiest way because trying to describe what color correction is, is a pain. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize just uh, that there's this intermediate step after it gets cut locked that you know someone actually sits down and looks at the picture exactly and you can't even just say i'm an editor because they go what books i <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Uh, yeah yeah oh, oh are you a film editor well actually nobody gets film anymore but uh well you know so it's kind of that's why i just go with the television editor is the easiest way right and uh so can you i'd like to take a little bit of time to talk about how you got started because uh, I'm looking over your IMDb thing, your first credit comes up around 1989, I think. Oh, that, yeah. Is that about right? Uh, well, I guess, yeah, as far as what will end up on IMDb. Right. Uh, I, I started, uh, well, really, I, what I started when I was a kid. I worked in my neighbor's yard when I was 12, did his yard for, I don't know, like six months or something in exchange for this old 8-millimeter wind-up camera that he had. Oh, cool. And uh, that was, you know, I got, I got the bug. I mean, that was just it. I was making movies with the kids in the neighborhood. And, you know, that's what I wanted to do for a living. 
Um, but I got it kind of sidetracked because at that point, there, you know, unless you were born to a family that was already connected or you happen to be born in a rich family or something, there, you know, the chances of getting into the film business were pretty slim. Um, and so I went off and did other stuff. And then along comes this movie, Star Wars. And you, start, <laughs> you get the backstory from, you know, George Lucas, who didn't come from that and, you know, had a, you know, a near fatal accident and decided to rededicate his life. And, you know, look what he turned around and started doing. And I said, you know what? Anybody could do this. Yep. So I kind of went back towards that direction. Um, and that was, uh, you know, changed my, my direction in college. And uh, so basically while I was in college, um, we had, uh, I was going at that time to Pasadena City College and they had a really strong uh, television program, but they had a really weak film program. It was really like one film class. Uh, yep. So, you know, I, I'm like, started doing the television program. And it was great because, you know, everybody wanted to work in the studio, so it was hard to get into the studio. But I didn't really care because they had one, EN, one ENG camera. And the uh, ENG camera, nobody else wanted to use. So I'm like, this, <laughs> this is great. You know, I went out, I was shooting like crazy. But as I'm shooting film style with a video camera. Um, so I did tons and tons and tons of stuff. Beta SP or was this three-quarter inch? This was three quarter inch, you know, yeah, with, the, with the big umbilical cord and all that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually wrecked my back doing that, you know, yeah. be carrying, carrying the camera up on my shoulder, you know, the big heavy camera and then had the, uh, the three quarter inch recorder, you know, strapped over my other shoulder. I mean, I don't know, that's probably 150 pounds. Yeah, beer. that's a big I mean, usually when we were doing it, you'd have the audio guy carrying that bit, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then so you come out of college, you're, you're doing all this stuff, and then you get your first job in the industry at that point? Uh, actually, I was still in college, and what happened it was really a fluke. Um, the woman who cut my hair, her husband was... <laughs> this is L.A. <laughs> yes. His, her husband uh, you know, was a producer on um, you know, basically like low-budget commercials and stuff. And he calls me one time on a Wednesday, and he's like, uh, well, are you familiar with the Airy SR-16? Of course, I'd never seen one, but I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, are you available this weekend? I'm like, sure. Well, so could you do an assistant camera job? I'm like, yeah, I, I, can, I can squeak you in there. So, <laughs> which Then I immediately raced down to the rental house where the gear was, and I spent all day Thursday, you know, tearing it apart, putting it together, tearing it apart, putting it together, load the film, unload the, you know. Yep. I, so that by Saturday, I was, you know, dead nuts on with that part. Uh, but it was interesting because, you know, I, I show up. It was for a music video, actually. And, uh, you know, I started out fine, but then it would be something like, the, you know, the DP would go, oh, go get me a hi-hat. Like, what the <laughs> hell is he talking about? <laughs> so I go running up to the, to, the, to the grip truck, and I'd go, you know, I'd look around, find a grip somewhere. i go, hey, have you seen the hi-hat? I don't know where it's left. And he's like, yeah, it's right in front of you. Oh, oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, you know, bs my way through. Yeah. Um, and then I got, you know, hired back to work on other things. The director of that was Tim Newman, who uh, did a lot of high-end commercials and did the I Love L.A. video, the ZZ Top videos, et cetera. Right. So, so yeah, that was the, uh, that was the beginning. Um, and then while doing that, I said, well, you know, I, there was this guy who made the, a film called The Polish Vampire from Burbank. I don't know if you remember this time period. This was in the mid-'80s. And what was happening is the studios were not, you know, they were fighting in Congress against uh, 
the, you know, the whole VHS, movies on VHS thing. They were trying to get that concept stopped. Right. Um, and so you'd have these little mom and pop video stores and they'd buy anything that came in the door, you know, because they had to have product. And so this guy made this movie for like $40,000, The Polish Vampire of Burbank, which he shot on Super 8. And, you know, he ended up making like $400,000 or something off of it because he was able to sell it to all these places. Right. So I thought, well, you know, if he can do it, I can do it. Yeah. Um, of course, I didn't have any money. Uh, so we used, uh, you know, the, again, the ENG camera from school. The statute of limitations is gone here, so I can talk about this. We used the ENG camera from school and shot, you know, basically a full, you know, 90-minute uh, feature. Um, and in posting that, I ended up working at this place, uh, Matchframe Video, which was just, you know, they had a couple portable edit systems and one one-inch online bay. Right. And um, I went there to do the finishing, and uh, he ended up hiring me to, you know, kind of just do a little maintenance and things, whatever, odds and end type stuff, which was exactly perfect for me because I needed the free time to try to market my movie. And that slowly turned into, you know, eventually a full career. I was 16 years there. I was employee number one, and I was there for 16 years. Wow. And they just recently closed. Yep. Went out of business. Um, and that was because back in the 90s when we got the first symphony um, I think it was the first symphony in LA actually the Abbott symphony that was the first system that would allow you to do uncompressed uh, standard definition video at the time in a computer that was a right. big big deal yep. and um, I started working on that because I was basically had been the uh, a linear you know online editor slash offline editor and so I'd done some, you know, when they bought Avids there, I had done offline on the Avids, so I knew the Avids, but I also knew online. So when they got a symphony, I was the natural person to put in there. And somehow it just clicked for me. Um, but I looked at that and I, you know, I just kind of, you know, I, I looked at, at the fact that they could now put it into a computer and you apply Moore's law, you know, it's gonna get faster and cheaper every year. And I, I could just say, well, sooner or later, people are gonna be able to do this at home. Yeah. yeah, did you did you get did you get into arguments with some of your peers about the Oh yes. You know, oh, the yeah. online guys and oh no, oh, yeah. it's just a toy and Yeah. 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 And I kept trying to convince these guys, look, you've gotta you've got to, you know, get up here and learn these systems. I mean, this is the future. Um, you know, all, all of them now are either out of the business or, you know, doing it, but I really had to drag them in, kicking and screaming. Yeah, because you really only had two options. You're going to learn this or you're doing something else. So. Right. And, and it, you know, to be fair, it still was more To this day, I could actually cut down um, a show like, like uh, you know, I did the entire series of Win Ben Stein's Money. And they would do a line cut, you know, and, and they had ISOs. And they'd come in and we'd cut it down. And, you know, I could do one show in four hours completely, yeah. you know. You'd still be digitizing that. Yeah, you'd still be loading everything in. Right. So there are times when a, a linear bay is still more efficient, but, you know, not enough times to justify the cost of it is, is the problem. Unless you've already had that sunk cost. There are one or two places here in New York that I know that actually do a really robust business on infomercials. And with all the different tagging that they have to do and all the different phone numbers and which they use for keeping track of when different ads are airing, what's working, where's their money coming from. Uh, you know, they can, you can plow through it so much quicker on, in a linear bay than, than dealing with digitizing, laying off, and all the stuff that goes in between on, a, uh, uh, on a nonlinear system. And so they do it linearly. Yeah. yeah. Well, see, it makes sense. 
It does. And I mean, you and I kind of, as I was looking over your CV, you know, I realized we're very similar in that we both came from a strong online background and then transitioned into color grading. And so I imagine that, you know, as you made the move from, you said you call yourself a colorist today. Um, I imagine a lot of that move came from sitting down and the tools that opened up with Symphony. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that was part of the problem in, in uh, you know, the linear base. You didn't have a lot of control. You had the TBC, basically. I yep. mean, you had, uh, you know, hue and uh, setup and gain, uh, and that was it. And, and you could move to, you know, an RGB-based color corrector if you needed to, which, of course, was an additional rental in the bay, so people didn't yep. usually want to do that. Um, and and was still kind of painful. And again, I mean, if you were doing the linear stuff, you know that you have to you have to correct the shot as you're recording it. Yep. So, you know, it's not like you can go back and go, well, let's go change that scene. I mean, it's that's it. You know, it's going to be a major pain in the ass to go back and change something. So, um, I, you know, I got used to being able to do things fast and right on the first pass. So, you know, that helped. Then once all, all of a sudden when I got the Symphony tool set, I was like, oh, this is, this is nuts. This is insane. Right, look what I can do. <laughs> now, at that point, do they have the curves? Is that, did they have the full-blown curves thing going on at that point? Or? Yeah, because it, it was basically everything was there um, except for secondaries in the first pass, as I recall. And then they added the secondaries in the next major release. Um, but, yeah, I, it was interesting because sitting down and, and, you know, I we at that point we had colorists at match frame they'd grown enough to that point we had telecine and you know i brought the colorists in and said you know check this thing out and um basically they they play around a little bit and and finally they're like you know well the curves makes the most sense in here and so i sort of you know i could see that as i tried working with different things um and well i know i noticed in the, your interview with steve holdfish he goes yeah terry likes curves yeah <laughs> <laughs> well you do i mean i've seen you on the forums actually do a very great defense of curves as a primary grading tool oh they're extremely powerful in in that situation especially when you don't have the trackballs yeah you know i don't know how much this is going to change when uh whenever avid comes out you know whenever they do finally map the uh, color correction panel to the symphony right um, you know maybe that will change i don't know i'll have to see when that happens but at this point in time i can do uh, i can operate much faster in the curves than in the hue offsets unless you know the only exception is maybe a, if somebody does a you know like if you got a film transfer where everything's you know 98 percent of the way there anyways you know then you can jump in there and hue offsets will you know you can do your little bit of dialing in really fast and move on but most of the stuff that I do is reality shows and, you know, you're just trying to make it viewable. Yeah, I find that, um, you know, because I, you know, I tend to work a color and and now resolve workflow. And so I tend to try to keep my hands on the surface, but uh, on the control surface. But I do find myself that curves are really great for almost instantly fixing major color balance issues. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you just dial, just dial in your RGBs exactly how you need them, level them out, and you're off. Right. Yeah, once you get used to it, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think in curves, so, right. you know, it just automatically happens. It's like, I, I don't have, I mean, I can look at the scope or look at the picture. I know exactly where I'm going on the curves without having to go or think about it, you know what I mean? Yep, yep. So, I, I, but I know when somebody sits down the first time and looks at curves, they're like, uh... I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, now, do you find, like, like on your curves, I've seen, 
I've seen some, you know, demos that people give and they're writing these enormously. They've got like 50 points on their curve. Oh, no, you that's know, crazy. Yeah you, yeah, you don't you're, you're not that kind of guy. No, I mean, if you're finding yourself putting 50 points on a curve, you're better off going to secondaries. Right. I mean, that's that's completely inefficient. Um, I can't even imagine. Yeah. I mean, I think the most I've probably ever had is maybe four. Right. Well, you, know, you count the two endpoints. So let's say three in between, probably the right. most I've ever had. And that's on something that's uniquely bad. And that's usually where you're just trying to isolate a particular tonal range, maybe. And, yes, exactly. And, and you're trying to keep everything else in line. And so you try to hold it and constrain it. Right. And, and that's something you can't really do with the Hue wheels because you have sort of that predefined range for the three sets. Yeah. And, um, but you also, you also work color, though, don't you? Uh, we have color. I personally have only t played with a little bit. I have a Da Vinci colorist who does all the jobs that go through color. Okay. I should say former Da Vinci colorist because he hasn't worked on a Da Vinci in years and years and years. But, um, uh, you know, it, it's a much more natural workflow for him to jump on that. Right. Um, and have you tried playing with the curves on that? Yeah, a little bit. I wasn't as impressed with them. They're kind of painful compared to the Avid's, Avid's yeah. curves. That's been kind of my impression as well. I was curious if you felt the same way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and part of the reason that, again, I haven't spent a lot of time as colors, you know, we do, we have a lot of work going through in, you know, both Avid side and the uh, Final Cut side. And, you know, I have Avid down. So, right. you know, I can keep busy doing that. Why would I go, you know, learn another area to work over there when I already have the skill set here and I have somebody else who can work over there. You know what I mean? Yep. Sort of. Um, so there hasn't been a need for me to really spend a lot of time on it. Um, so really my playing with it has been more just to learn and see what's there and what are the options, you know, and to go, boy, I wish they'd put this into Avid. Uh, <laughs> so what would you like them to put into Avid? <laughs> Where to start? Well, I think we all know the main <laughs> things, you know, shapes. Uh, tracking would be good, you know. That, you don't that, have shapes. You don't have shapes. No, not not in in the color corrector itself. What they have is a separate effect. It's called the spot color effect. Right. You know, and you can drop it on, and you can draw your you know whatever shape you want, of course, and you can track in there, and you can animate it, and all that kind of stuff. But it's not as efficient as um, having it built into the color corrector. That's for sure. And so it's not real time. It's a render. So. So then do you find yourself sometimes just avoiding doing certain things simply because you know that it's yeah. going to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I will try to figure other ways around it before I do that because it's going to slow the whole process down. Um, and that's a disadvantage. And, I, you know, I mean, I know they've heard this at Avid. They know this at Avid. But everything at Avid is about, you know, resources versus return. You know, how many people want this? How much is the time is it going to take us to do? I mean, they've got, you know, probably thousands of requests from people. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting problem they have in trying to do enough R and D, uh, to keep us all, all the different parts of their business happy on the small, I mean, you know, they're, they are a small company. If you compare them to Apple, they're, you know, a flea on the back of a hair, you know? Right. Um, so they're, they're a very small company and they're trying to keep their whole customer base happy. So. Well, I guess it comes down to just how important is the color grading workflow to their entire, to their entire you know customer base. I mean, it's the same thing with Apple Color, and right. uh, and right. pro, and Pro apps. Well, and I think you kind of see it there with Apple. You know, it's like to that for them to buy another company, 
you know, was nothing. I mean, you right. know, they, they've got more cash than God. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it gave them, you know, here, look, now we can say we have color, professional color correction ability. But it's not really integrated. I mean, that's another reason I wouldn't want to work with color is it's such a pain in the ass. You know, you've got to go out of Final Cut into color. You have no audio. You no longer can trim. You're, you're not in the edit system anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm so used to the symphony. I'm tooling along, color correcting something, and I go, oh, that effect's wrong. So I, change, I go and I work on the effect. Or, you know, a, a client could be sitting in there watching it and go, can you trim that? Yeah, I can trim that because I'm still in the edit system, you know? So I, it's not a separate universe. And, you know, color doesn't have audio. That's another pain in the ass because, you know, you go to do the client screening, they want to hear it while they watch it. So that means you've got to render it out, now send it back to Final Cut so they can watch it. And if they go, well, can you change the color on that shot? Well, wait, now we have to go back to color. You know, I mean, it's a major pain in the ass. Yeah, so, you know, I've, I've developed techniques over the years as a way of mitigating some of that pain, but it's still pain. Right, you know? and, and my point is, if, if it was really that important to Apple, they would have done the R&D to put those tools into Final Cut itself. You know what I mean? Right. So that gives you an idea of the relative... Uh, a demand, I think, from people for color correction in the overall scheme of how many editors there are, et cetera. But let if, me ask you this, though, along those lines, you know, if you noticed a difference when Apple released color as, you know, Apple buys this thing, and no one knew, outside of industry insiders, no one knew what Final Touch was. And, but Apple buys color, bundles it with Final Cut, and releases it with Final Cut. Um, right. Did you notice a change in your clients coming in and asking for specifically for color grading as they do you think that it raised the awareness that, wow, there's a whole like another craft out there. It's not uh, just a plug in. No, I haven't. I haven't really seen that so much. Um, it, it's interesting because we do because of the digital service station, which is, um, you know, that that's basically an I.O. Uh, service, you know, if, if somebody's got, a, 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 they've done a film, and you know, all of a sudden they get accepted at a festival or, or they've sold it somewhere, um, and you know, they have to deliver it on X format. They go, oh my God, how do I get to that? Well, they come into a, di a digital service station, whichever one's near them, and they can output it to whatever flavor of tape or file or whatever they have to do. Um, when they come in, a lot of times we, you know, it'll be. They may say, well, is there any way I can make this look better? Well, yeah, actually, there is. We can <laughs> take you through color correction and fix it up. So we're still educating people about that. Um, right. and, and, and it sort of leads to, you know, a big problem in our industry, and it's our fault, and that is that we have not educated the public about color correction. And as a result, you know, our value is now um, not appreciated enough. I mean, if you flip cable channels... You know, you oh go, my God! Oh, ooh, ow, ouch! Ooh, but you know, people at home obviously are not going. Oh, that color correction sucks. Because if they were, they'd be complaining, and it would come back up the line, and then you know, everybody would then be willing to spend some money to fix the color. If the sound is really bad, they'll bitch. Yep. But if the color is bad, they won't. And that's, I think, that's our fault. We have not educated the public. It's partially our fault. I mean, you know, it's it's the the story that you know, my wife thought everything was good until I pointed her out what was wrong. And right. now she hates me for pointing it out that it's wrong. <laughs> yes, but now she knows. Okay. Yeah, and she hates me for it because she used to <laughs> enjoy it just fine before. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could say that, you know, I mean, I, I like to compare it to, for instance, classical painting. And, and uh, you know, it's like I go into a museum and I look and I, 
you know, I'm looking at the lighting and going, wow, that's really cool how the lighting changed, you know, in different periods and, and, you know, makes it look better, et cetera, et cetera. But somebody who is classically trained as a painter may be going in there and going, well, you know, look at the brush strokes they used yeah. here and they did this wrong and they did that right. And no, I get, you know, I don't see any of that. I don't get that level of detail. And as a consequence, you know, I'm satisfied with just about any painting that I look at that I like. I mean, it doesn't really matter, you know? Well, I think one of the reasons people are more willing to accept bad looking picture is our, the ability of our brains to fix the problems. You know, if everything is color balanced wrong, uh, our brains just kind of fix it for us. And they say, yeah, it's pretty close. I mean, that's basically how life looks, kind of. And, you know, whites become white. That's true. You know, so I think part of it is just a, a built-in mechanism that as humans, we, our brains are very good at white balancing for us. And, yes. uh, you know, so. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you see that, you know, when I try to explain to people just color temperature, you know, with the lighting. Right. It's like, if, if you know what you're looking at, you realize the light in your room is orange. You know, the average light in a room is orange, but people don't realize that. They are, their minds tell them that's white, even though it's not. Yeah, you do have to kind of, you know, after a while, you do have to kind of step back. And, you know, even myself, you know, I'll put myself in a mode where I'm just kind of examining the surroundings around me, just regular life and watching how the different lights interact with each other. And then you start seeing the color temperature differences. But, you know, in normal day-to-day -day life, it's rare that I just get hit with it. I generally have to put myself in that kind of, you know, looking from above kind of mode to see it. Right, right. So now, um, now Resolve, have you guys, you, you, you mentioned that you have a, uh, an ex-Da Vinci Resolve guy. Mm -hmm. Have you guys uh, considered uh, moving to Resolve or, or, or implementing it in your workflow? Um, we were ready to do it when, we, you know, when the need is there. Um, I mean, one of the things that, um, you know, one of the things I learned in, in, you know, one of the advantages, actually, I should say, to... Uh, having been employee number one at Matchframe, and you know, when I left, there was 68 employees. So, oh, you know, wow, I saw a lot of growth, and I saw a lot of uh, growing pains, and I've been able to avoid, you know, a big chunk of those. But one of the big things that I learned was, uh, you know, it, the the concept of if you build it, they will come is bullshit. It is. Uh, you Thank know, you. So, so you know, my business approach is uh, when they're hammering down the door, put it together quick. Right. You know, right. so I, I stay on top of everything. You know, um, our colorist has—I'll kill that. Sorry. Sorry. Right. Our colorist has done a few jobs on uh, on the uh, the Da Vinci at another location, and uh, it's not ready yet for you know a workflow within the Avid universe. Let's say it's yeah. got a lot of limitations. It um, does. Um, so. You know, jump on it? No. I mean, you can, you know, the, the, the only reason to do it would be to go, well, A, they have a really good, you know, tracker, obviously. They have a good tool set in there. <laughs> Their but, tracker, I still giggle when I use it. Yeah. The, the, some of the stuff that attracts is just absolutely ridiculous. You're like, really? You can track that? Yeah. And so then yeah. I giggle. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, you know, that kind of thing is, is pretty darn cool, but it's not enough to justify a whole, you know, the, the pain of the whole workflow of going to it. Um, you know, we, we have fast turnarounds on a lot of stuff, and I just don't have time to be farting around with difficult, you know, workflows to try, you know, trying to hammer a, uh, a round peg into a square hole type thing, you know. Right. 
And so in that universe, it's easier to just figure out in a, you know, like if it's an avid job to figure out in the symphony, how do I get around this than to say, well, how can I take this out to a whole nother universe and, you know, with all of the complexities involved and eventually come back to this universe. And yeah, that's tough. You know, and it's actually kind of one of my pet, you know, I've kind of soured a little bit on the whole Final Cut Studio thing. And part of that is, you know, I felt that Apple was making promises it couldn't keep, which was largely the whole mix and match thing. It's we oh, yes. take any format at any frame rate and mix and match them together. What they yeah. don't say is they mix, <laughs> mix and match them poorly, terribly. Right. Yes. You know? Well, it was funny because when they, when they, I don't, were you at the event, the user event at NAB that year when they announced that, when they showed it? No, I was not. Okay, yeah. So I'm I'm at this, you know, and they do the big thing, and you can mix and match, and then the shows, you know, they throw like a 24 frame clip into a 30 frame timeline, and I'm watching this. I'm going, oh my god, it's they're just doubling every fourth frame, and then they threw the uh, you know 30 frame material into a 24th frame, a 24 frame timeline, and then they're just throwing out every fifth frame. And it was like yeah. ah, yeah. And and the people are going crazy. Wow, this is so great. And I'm like, no, it's totally wrong. <laughs> And, you know, and, and, Avid, and they're scaling, Avid, you know, as well as like throwing oh, NTSC yeah. into HD and yeah, Oof. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 ugly. And, you know, and, and then, of course, you know, everybody's going see, you know, Final Cut does this and Avid doesn't do it. And I kept saying, well, that's because Avid can't do it until they can do it right. I mean, they're, right. you know, they, because they have, you know, you can't go to NBC and go, well, how's this? Is this good enough? No. You know, I mean, they have to because they have so many high end professional clients, they have to make it right before they can release it. Right. So, you know, when they finally did come out with it, you know, which it has now, it, it, it actually works correctly. If you throw a 24 frame, you know, clip into a 30 frame timeline, you get two, three pull down. If you can throw can a we 30 talk about this feature for a minute? Because this is something and, and I'm, I'm thinking about my business, right? And what NLEs I really want to support going forward. And, you know, we're just a week away from NAB 11, where Apple is about to announce the next version of yeah. Final Cut, and I'll tell you, the one all I'm looking for is for quality mixing and matching of frame rates and frame slot sizes. That's all I want. Oh. I want it to be done well and professionally. And, you know, Avid has told me that they're doing that now. Would you agree? Yes, they are. And they how are they doing it? Like, is, is it a feature set or, you know, I haven't looked into this too much. I'm curious. It's 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 automatic, uh, but it's still within, you know, the, one of the differences between Avid and Final Cut is that in Avid, you create a project based on your frame rate and frame size. Right. Okay. Where in Final Cut, it's just, you know, you create a timeline based on your uh, frame rate and frame size, but the project is whatever the hell you want. You can have all kinds of timelines in it. Right. Avid, you still have to create the actual project. So let's say you've got a bunch of 30 frame material you want to bring into a 24 frame project you still have to capture that or import it into a 30-frame project. Then you go into your 24-frame project, and you can open those 30-frame bins within your 24-frame project. And anytime you use one of those clips in your 24-frame project, it automatically is, is, you know, gets the, the, the motion effect is automatically applied to that clip when you cut it into a timeline, and it works. And what is they do going... Uh, from 24 to 30, obviously, is they add two, three pull down. Going from 30 to 24, they do a blended interpolated, um, which is actually looks really good. You're happy with that? Yeah, and 99% of the time, it's fantastic. And you know, if you want to, you can go in and change 
you know, uh, the interpolation method on that. You can go all the way up to the fluid motion. The fluid motion, I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, I'm not. Uh, it's uh, kind of like a Twix store had real motion, I think it was. Yeah, or similar to the optical motion in, uh, in motion. Yeah, you, they, yeah, they do the same kind of thing where they, they create, you know, new frames that didn't exist, right. you know, right. uh, by, by going in between. Well, you know, that is an option in there, but then it's render intensive. The, the other, you know, when you just drop it in, the blended interpolate is automatically, it's a real-time effect. So you can just start, you know, you just start cutting away. You don't even know you're working with other frame rates other than that you see the little green dot on it that says there's an effect there. And now, and so when you're working in 24 or 23.98 and you drop in a 29.97 uh, clip, it's automatically applying a motion effect that uh, reinterpolates while it drops those frames. And is that a render intensive thing or is it, is it playing out oh. real time? No, that's what I'm saying. It's real time. That is it's real time. It's only a render. It only becomes a render if you can change the type of... Uh, interpolation it's doing like i said if you change it to fluid motion you're gonna have to render it because fluid motion is obviously and it's right. it's a bitch i mean it's that's a render you don't want to do unless you absolutely have to okay and but, now but, what about scaling how's the scaling when you're going from ntsc to hd uh the scaling is actually really good it's not as nasty as final cut it's not as fine as uh you know a you know some of the higher end scaling systems but uh, like you mean like in terms of like um, an alchemist or or you yes. thinking more like Quantel or something like that? Yeah, or Quantel or an alchemist or, you know, smoke, let's say. Um, you know, it's not of that caliber. It's, but you, it's, you know, it's very good. You wouldn't see the difference unless you were comparing it to, uh, you know, an alchemist or a smoke or something. Gotcha. So just playing it out, you're like, well, this looks really good and I'm, yes. I'm happy with it. Exactly. I mean, you know, how good does standard F look when you blow it up to SD, I mean, HD anyways? Like, eh. Exactly. <laughs> so now what do you do with, um, so you get these guys or these people, filmmakers coming in through the digital service station. They've got all these mixed frame rate formats. So let's say they hire you for the color correct and finishing. Mm -hmm. uh, are you going to keep them in Final Cut? Or are you going to move them to Avid for finishing? What are you going to do? We keep them in whatever format they were off, they offlined in. Okay. We really try not to move back and forth whenever possible. I mean, I have one client who insists on color correcting with me, um, and he insists on oscillating in Final Cut. And so, I, <laughs> you know, those we move over, thank God for Automatic Duck, um, to the Symphony. But everybody else, it's like if it's a, if it's a Final Cut offline, it's going to go through Final Cut finishing. If it's an Avid offline, it's going to go through Avid finishing. So if they want to do a 24p finish, but they've got 2997 footage, what do you do? Um, I've had a couple of those. Uh, with that guy, actually, the client who does, <laughs> who does I, 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 it was hell. Um, because what you can do in Final Cut uh, is take, you know, so they, they've offlined in 29.97, and then they come in and they go, okay, I need a 24P master. Oh, great. So you take the 29.97 sequence in, in Final Cut, and then you create a 23.98 sequence in Final Cut. You copy the 29.97, you paste it into the 23.98. Yeah. Bam. Now you have a 2398 sequence with some little black holes here and there. You know, the one yeah. frame you got to go through and you have to dial it a bit. But yeah, then because what happens for those who haven't tried that, I guess yeah. what happens is Final Cut's just kind of poor counting frames. And occasionally it miscounts where that last frame of a shot is and it comes up short. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's true with any anytime you do the conversion from 30 to 24, whether it's EDL manager or whatever, you're going to have that problem. And it's because 
that you know you've you've edited there there when you're working in 30 frame on with 24 frame source you know you've actually got a frame that doesn't exist in the 24 frames out of every five frames there's one frame that does not exist so if that number comes up right yep uh, which wherever they those numbers are i forget which ones they are off the top of my head but you know it's like if you count from one to 30 um you know for with 24 frame source there's going to be certain numbers that just don't exist um so when you, you know, if you happen to make an edit that edits on one of those from the source side, edits on one of those numbers or even on the record side, if it edits on one of those numbers that doesn't actually exist in the 24 frame universe, then the editing software, when you're doing a conversion, has to make a decision. Well, do I go plus or minus one here? Which side do I pick? Because yep. it's got, you know, it, that frame that you wanted to do it on does not exist. So now it's either got to go to the frame before or it's got to go to the frame after. And I guess you theoretically have what about a twenty twenty percent chance of getting it right or something like that? Would yeah, that be it? One out of five. One out of five. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it's amazing what it, it works as much as it does, actually. Right. And but you know, I never really I still have trouble with that concept because what I found is, you know, Final Cut's dropping frames, so you you know, anything that has motion in it, you just it just looks like Yeah, looks terrible. like hell. Yeah, I mean, yes. it's just choppy. Right. Know? It doesn't, in the Avid site, you don't, it doesn't look like that. Yeah, yeah. And so then on those Final Cut projects, you just, do you inform the client and then just, you know, they make the decision what they want to do? Yeah, I mean, we basically try to, to you know, sell them through the process, you know, whichever one they've got. If they've offline in Final Cut, we try to sell them the online finishing in uh, Final Cut. Okay. So, and then, you know, there's tiers. I mean, there's... People who don't want to spend the money to really do the heavy color correction, it won't even go to color, you know. Right. It'll, it, you know, you do the minor color correction in the final cut <coughs> gag <laughs> color tool. tool. Uh, <laughs> um, and I'm just running through my questions here. Uh-huh. Uh, hold on. We covered a lot of stuff so far. Oh. Yeah, we've talked about mix and match. Um, which I find immensely interesting, and we've talked well. You know, this may all change with the you know Final Cut, i i Cut Pro, whatever the heck it is. Yeah, Final Final, I like FCPX. Yeah, I like okay. <laughs> FC, I like IFCP, but okay. IFCP, yeah, that <laughs> might be where we're going. Well, like I said, I mean, we're a week away from finding out. Do you do you have any high hopes for this this release? I mean, is there something you're looking at that you look at and say if they come out with this? then they're serious about our market? No, I, I know they're not. It's not that, you know, I know what it is. I know uh, it is not what, you know, it, it's, it's not gonna work in our universe uh, immediately. Right. Let's just put it, Apple's looking at, you know, where are people gonna be in three years and five years? Where's the future of the market? I mean, you gotta remember Apple has, you know, they love closed systems. They're all yeah. about closed systems, okay? And right now they have everything in place to have the complete closed system for all your content creation and viewing. You know, you can shoot it on your iPhone, edit it on your iPad, uh, you know, post it to iTunes, and then other people can download it and watch it on their iPads, iPhones, iPods, uh, Apple TVs, etc. cetera. Uh, and if any money is paid for that content, then Apple makes a little piece of that too. So they, you know, they're basically in the big picture, they're gonna replace studios and networks and everything, okay? So if you look at that and you go, 
you know, what does the editing application really need to be? Does it need to be able to match back to film? Does it need to be able to do tape IO? Does it need, you know, all these things that we're used to doing and that we need, uh, it's not going to need to do. So why invest any effort into that? So what, you know, as I understand it, what they basically are doing is taking the, uh, you know, the iMovie code, which is newer code, and, you know, adding effects, you know, adding features to that, essentially. I mean, if you look at the performance of well, iMovie... Well, do you think that, um, you know, it'll still be a platform that, like, professional documentarians will still want to use? I think it's going to depend on your delivery. Right. Um, you know, I, I, you know, my guess is, you know, because the people who've seen it, you know, all say awesome. But I know, then, and that's what, you know, I saw on your, uh, we haven't talked about your editor's lounge, but you just posted, I guess, yesterday's, you had an editor's lounge? Uh, it was actually a week ago. Week a week ago? Yeah. And so you had Mark, I can never say his last name from... Um, Radonis. Radonis. Yeah. And he, he saw it, and he was impressed with it, and he's got, what, 100 seats of Final Cut, you know? Right, right. But but he, you also noticed when I pushed him on, you know, <laughs> would you put it in, is it ready to go into Buena Murray? He's like, I, uh, yeah, I can't he jump that. on that. No. He yeah, didn't. no, he can't. It's it, because yeah. it's not. It's not for that universe. Um, yeah. it, it is not for that universe that exists. But, See, you know. You made me sad, Terry, I, because. I'm sorry, because that's, you know, I mean, the, the reality, is, and, and you have to look at what is the future. I mean, the future is going to be, you want to make your documentary, you make it, and then you post it on iTunes or whatever, and but, you make but, money that way. But that's not, you know, and what makes me sad isn't so much that, you know, Apple's looking at it that way. It's that how did Final Cut get to be so successful was its openness. It was XML. It was, um, of course, well, I'm sure cost. I'm sure it'll still have XML. Uh, it won't be based on traditional QuickTime, which is that's been the handicap for Final yeah, that'll Cut That'll probably Pro. be a very good thing. Yeah. So so and that's why I say when you're talking about mix and match, you know, that may not be an issue because of, you know, they have so much more performance ability now. They may be able to do that very smoothly without a problem. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and again, now you're part of the whole delivering file base and everything is we have to, you know, do everything progressive now in theory. I mean, because if people are going to be watching on these little monitors, you don't want interlace. You nope. want progressive. So everything is going to have to go progressive. So if you take you know, a 24 frame project and you throw 30 frame material, not only do you have to make it 24 frames, you have to make it 24 progressive frames. Right. You know, otherwise it has to be done later on when you compress it for the web, but you want to have that master file be all progressive so you don't have to deal with that later. Right. And, um, so <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is a little bumming to me, but, um, Sorry. No, it's okay. I mean, but I've seen this it coming. Is, this I've is seen... why I think, you know, it's you're going to have people going yay and also going damn at the same time. And Apple right. knows. That. I guarantee you they know that, which is why they're trying to figure out how to sell this thing. I mean, never in the past have they had a sneak preview where they invite, you know, around 100 industry luminaries to come up and, you know, see this way ahead of everybody else. I mean, they, they haven't done that in the past, you know. Yeah, it and, is a big break from the norm for them. Right. And, and, and that told me right away that they're going, Jesus, we have to get, you know, these guys on our side, you know, pimping this thing ahead of time. We've got to control the message. And I think that's what all of this is about. Even the, the super meat game that, that's going on right now is about controlling the message because they don't want, you know, the initial response is going to be, oh, man, it doesn't do, you know, what I need it to do right now. 
but that's going to be a teeny percentage of the people saying that, and they want to control that so that that doesn't become a big deal. You know what I mean? So then do you think NAB is the right place if that's the case? And we're all, of course, we're just speculating, neither of us. Well, I'm I'm not under NDA. You're not under NDA. Um, Right. So do you think NAB was the right place for them to talk about it then? Um, Not necessarily. Um, and, and, you know, in trying to predict, you know, last month, trying to predict, well, will they announce it before NAB or not? I, I thought they would not because on one hand, you know, it's a no brainer for them. Announce it before NAB. It's all anybody will talk about. Right. Which right. is what's happening right now. It's all right. anybody will talk about. Uh, but on the other hand, if it's not, you know, if it doesn't fit into the professional format, which is what we're seeing, you know, I believe we're going to be seeing, uh, then it's kind of a trap because, you know, you don't want everybody walking around NAB going, well, it doesn't work for what we need it to do. Right. So by showing it Tuesday night, which essentially NAB is over at that point, yeah. as far as as far as the press cycle goes. Yeah. So even if there's stuff, people come out on Wednesday and go, oh, well, it was missing this and it was missing that. It's not part of the whole NAB buzz at yeah. that point. You see what I mean? So yeah. it actually is smart to do it at that point. If they were really convinced that everybody was going to go, oh, my God, they would have shown it on Sunday. Right. You know what I mean? So the fact that they're not releasing it ahead of time tells you they're concerned about, you know, how it's going to be perceived. This is a good spot to end part one. In part two, we talk about the future of tape, our business, our craft, and the poor job our industry has done educating the public to expect well-crafted images. This podcast has been brought to you by TauofColor.com. I encourage you to leave comments on this interview in its blog posting. If you enjoyed this, you'll definitely enjoy our weekly color grading newsletter, which is delivered to your inbox every Sunday morning for you to enjoy with your morning coffee. And of course, the Tau has its own, it's very unique, project-based color grading training program. And I encourage you to check that out at masterclass.tauofcolor.com. My name is Patrick Inhofer. Thanks for your time.